Hello, beautiful Soul Confessions listeners, and welcome back to Episode 3, Love Conquers All, with me, Tara Lee. There were some emotionally dark places in my story, and this is not where I am today. This is a story about healing and moving through life's challenges and obstacles, about refusing to be defined by your external world. It is also a story about the power of love and opening yourself to possibilities. Remember last episode, I mentioned the vulnerable zone. I'm entering it by telling you this story. You are hearing things that I have never said out loud before writing this podcast. This is a healing experience for me, placing all that has been in the shadows into the light. My hope is that by sharing my story, it might just give you the courage to step into the light too, to let go of limiting beliefs and all the things that have held you back. My hope is that in some small way, this might help you on your healing journey too and help you to make the magic of your life happen. Before I start, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that at times recollections between individuals of events can and do vary. This is for many reasons, including fading memories or different interpretations taken away from the same event. These stories are not investigative pieces. They are about the impression that the event made. The story is based on my recollection of events, honest opinion and how things impacted me. The story is also at times based on other individuals or family members' recollection of events and honest opinions. As the name of the podcast suggests, Soul Confessions, there will be some personal and at times difficult subjects raised. This episode contains mental health themes. If at any time you are triggered by any of the stories, please reach out to your local support group. In Australia, Lifeline can be contacted on 13 11 14. Last episode, we got up to the point where Dad had left Mum and I in the house. Carrying on from there, when he did leave, the weight was lifted. The new dawn was exciting, confronting, unknown and chaotic. Where to from here? Mum was reinventing herself. I was finding myself... We were both hurt so badly, we had no capacity to be each other's support. We needed support and love to get us out of this emotional trough. We had sunk so low. We needed some help for the healing to commence. A number of years later, my mum found that in a partner. He helped her heal. He helped her with her little projects. He listened told stories and gave her presence just because he wanted to. Slowly she started to feel valued and confident and worthy when she was just being herself. She had the first feelings that she was worthy of all the wonderful things in life, that she was enough. He never judged her or said a bad word in her name. He took the time to put her back together He made her smile again. She loved again. Or maybe she understood what love really was for the first time. 
the love of two people coming together by choice, different from the love and connection you have with your children. This time, love did not hurt. Oprah was the first person I heard put it this simply. Love not hurting cuts through all the complexity we can create to stay in an unhealthy emotional state. I think with all the trauma mum experienced to this point in her life, she did not know the difference. It was all muddled, love, hurt, survival, duty. In practice, joy was not in the same sentence as love. We will go deeper into mum's story in another episode. For me, getting out of the emotional trough included the search for what to do with my life. What was I worthy of? What was I capable of? Do I go back to school? What do I want to do? I had so little direction. I had not found my purpose or my why. I didn't even have a spark. Eventually, I enrolled in an interior design course after deciding not to continue with my fine art studies in painting and photography. There was not too many jobs in either field. That was a major drawback of a creative career. I met my future husband while doing interior design, not as a classmate, but through mutual friends. He was quite a bit older than me. We clicked from the first conversation. He was gentle, loving and had nice things. Like a new car and a house without ghosts. His house also had a heater. He was in major contrast to my life at this stage. Everything in his world seemed functional, organised and nice. His family had nice dinners. They spoke to each other during the meal. There was no shouting. They hugged and kissed each other hello. I thought I was in an alternate reality. I could not relate to this behaviour. To anyone who observed the situation... I must have been like one of those rescue pups in human form. You know the ones you see on social media who eventually come out of the corner for a pat or a treat because they trust their carer? I was beyond shy and timid, taking the new circumstances in. I remember my mother-in-law saying many years later, we loved you but just did not know what to do with you in the early days. I had no idea they had observed me in this way. So much healing was still to be done at this point. Soon we welcomed a baby daughter into the world. As my mum and dad were going through a messy divorce, hubby's family became a close support network for me. They were loving, functional, welcoming and supportive. His parents filled that gap in my life at the time. His family were absolutely thrilled with the arrival of a grandchild and great-grandchild. She was and is so deeply loved and cherished by all. As the birth date got closer, I moved out of mum's house and in with my sister. She was 10 years older than me and had always been like a second mother, looking out for me when I was young, if mum was ever not there. She understood the family dynamic at the time and offered support through the birth and early care for the baby. She was a nurse who had two very small children at the time. There would always be someone home to help, 
Her house was always warm and inviting. This took so much stress out of the situation, stress I did not even know I could have. The birth is a wonderful story. In some ways, the process of her birth was a spiritual experience. In other ways, it was a near miracle. Much like the night I went missing as a four-year-old, there must have been a guardian angel on hand ensuring her safe and healthy arrival. So what happened? Labour must have been roughly 24 hours if I start the clock ticking from the first moment I noticed a different sensation in my pelvis. It was in the early hours after midnight. It was rhythmic, say every five to six minutes, this mild sensation occurred. That's what made me think it's the start of labour. When I got up that morning, my brother-in-law took a microsecond to say, something's changed today. Is it happening? It must have been written all over my face. I said, I'm not sure. As the day progressed, I rested and had two sleeps. Every so often, my sister and her husband would check how far apart these sensations were. They remained at five to six minutes for the entire time. Hubby was there and reluctantly left to go and do a few things. I was in safe hands and he was assured the birth was some time away. No need to hang around and watch. This would add to the performance pressure that a mother can feel with too many people to entertain. My sister kept in contact with the hospital and hubby while I rested. Progress seemed slow. Then it got to about 9 or 10pm. A call to the hospital confirmed it was time for me to go. Still many hours ahead were expected. Hubby was told the same. The drive to the hospital would be about 45 or so minutes. The labour was starting to make itself known. I was a positive thinker. I would not entertain any thoughts of fear now, nor had I for the entire pregnancy. I always had internal dialogue, telling myself, I will dilate 20 centimetres and this baby is going to fall out. Meaning the labour would be easy and my anatomy would be able to handle it well. I am also an intuitive person. I had not rehearsed or even thought of the visualisations I'm about to share. They came through in the moment. I visualised a beam of light entering through the crown of my head. It was a thick beam, say 15 centimetres diameter. It was pure white light. I took that light through the centre of my body and through the birthing canal. The thoughts of openness and dilation soon accompanied this white light. I continued to let the light and the thoughts flow. At the same time, as the light was creating a pathway in my body, I could feel the work my body was doing to prepare for this birth. The contractions were getting stronger. My response was to separate my mind from the sensations of my body. My mind went elsewhere. I was in space. I was travelling at light speed, just like the scene in Star Wars when they hit light speed for the very first time and the stars become lines in the darkness of the universe. That's what I saw. It was a meditation to pass the time of the drive to the hospital. I used my mind to remain calm and open. 
through what could have been a frightening experience for a young first-time mum. I do recall coming out of the meditation briefly and noticed we were stopped at some traffic lights next to a yellow taxi. I felt the driver's eyes on me. I looked at my sister, who was driving, and asked, Is he looking at me? I felt like I would have been quite a curious sight at this point. My sister looked past me and answered my question with a slight high pitch to her voice. No, she confirmed the taxi driver was not looking at me. She told a fib to keep me calm. So we arrived at the hospital to a locked front door and no one answering the night bell. They knew we were on our way. Again, I stayed calm, continued with my open thoughts and let my sister do all of the admin. Eventually someone came. At the moment I walked into the entrance of the hospital, a wave of emotion hit me. Some tears escaped. The enormity of the situation and how my life was about to change occurred to me. We were not at the hospital too long before the serious business started. The serious business was less than two hours if we arrived at 11pm. I remember the midwife and my sister were present. Not too many people. Hubby was told not to hurry. We had just arrived at the hospital. We thought we had hours ahead of us. As there were people present, I was more in my body than in a meditative state. I could feel that my body was preparing to perform a miracle. I tried to find a comfortable position. The most comfortable was being upright. I remember thinking, all of these women who birth while laying on their backs, how do they do it? It had to be the most uncomfortable position I tried. Noticing this, the midwife bought me a birthing stool. For anyone who is not sure what that is, it's a little U-shaped chair with no front on it. It also allows the midwife to assist with the birth. It was the best thing ever. I sat there and told her, I think I need to go to the toilet. She told me that my baby was coming. I was sure she was wrong. She was so keen for me not to disappear into the bathroom that she made a deal with me. If I do in fact need to go to the loo, she would clean up the mess. That logic made sense, so I sat back down on the birthing stool. That was, of course, my brain in the transitional phase. Sometime very soon after the negotiation to get me back on the birthing stool, I felt the overwhelming urge to push, push the baby out, that is. I asked the midwife if it was okay. Yes, it was. Somewhere about now, the order of things are a little mixed in my mind. There was a conversation between the midwife and my sister. The midwife said, I can't feel ahead. My sister processed this information and then asked, So what can you feel? She said a bottom. The baby was intending to come out bottom first. The two nurses in the room had their own secret language. They were exchanging verbal notes as if in code. They both knew it was an extremely precarious situation. I don't recall the conversation, but my sister recounts that no doctor was on duty and I did not register that the big red button the midwife pushed was the emergency button. 
I was the only one not panicking. I felt like I needed to push. Somewhere in there, I pushed. I pushed intuitively. I pushed like I felt I should, with all my might. In three pushes over roughly 10 minutes, a baby girl was born. I met her for the first time. She was perfect. Our eyes met. I checked her fingers and toes. Her face was beautiful. Amazing to meet this perfect little human who I was familiar with and had never laid eyes on. She never cried after she was born and I held her for the first time. Somewhere in there, the cord was cut by my sister and then the emergency crew arrived. They broke the peace of mum and baby observing each other for this very first time, a spiritual moment. The arrival of the emergency team included a trolley full of things. It must have been only minutes that they took to arrive, but by then the chaos was over. She was born happy and healthy. Our guardian angel was on hand. Maybe she shared the same name as the midwife. We learnt that night that our midwife loved breech births. She was the right midwife for us that night. My sister retired to the couch with a migraine brought on by stress. It was many years before she told me what the birth was like from her perspective. She feared the worst. The worst thing I said during the whole birth was to the emergency crew. They marched in with all their equipment. It included a bright light that shone straight into the baby's eyes to make her squint. I said, can you turn that off? In quite a stern tone. She was born at 12.50am. As soon as she had her initial stats taken, vitamin K shot and spoonful of mother's milk, we were tucked into bed for a rest. Hubby arrived. He sheepishly looked around the door into the birthing suite to see us. I think he was not meant to be there for all of the things that happened. It would have been too much to process. He arrived at the perfect time. All things happened as they should have that night. I don't know the stats on births of this nature. I'm not medically trained. I'm also a little fearful to know the reality of successful breech births like this one. I am sharing this story from a spiritual and good fortune perspective and not as any form of medical advice. From the time our daughter was born and into her early years, the reality of providing for a child into the future weighed on my mind. At this stage, I did not know the longevity of my relationship with hubby and had just seen my mother's journey to rebuild. I decided I would need financial independence. That way, I would be safe no matter what. My daughter gave me purpose. She became my why. I would need a house and a car and be able to provide her the things she needs. Nothing lavish was on my mind, just for her to have a good standard of living. By the time she was three or four, I had done my career due diligence. It consisted of reviewing the employment section of the Age newspaper for a few weeks. I got to A and saw so many accountant jobs that I thought that's what I would do. I will always have a job if I understand money. I can also build other competencies from this if I get bored with it. So I investigated what the next steps were. 
It was a long road to getting those qualifications, about 10 years. I was in my early 20s. It was half a lifetime to me at that stage. I had a life to take care of, being my daughter. So no road was too long. This journey was forever. Forever as in this lifetime. I applied as a mature age student to Monash University. They had a distance education program. No need to attend scheduled lectures. It was the only feasible way for me to have access to a university education. I enrolled and was soon accepted. It took me six and a half years to get my degree. I majored in accounting and business law. I then went on to do my CPA, a total of 10.5 years study. Yes, that's nearly all of my 20s and some of my 30s. During the time I studied, I worked full-time and studied part-time. As my roles became more senior, the hours increased. Those last few years of study were really tough. Long days in the office, often with no lunch breaks, working on the next deadline. The evenings were often study until late too. The weekends were more of the same. Catching up on study, work, work, work. In 2010, I remember that I did not go out a single weekend. Sometimes I was plain old exhausted by 6pm on a Saturday night. There was a little joke my husband had with some friends. Some never met me for years. I was the imaginary wife. He spoke of me, but never bought me. He supported my efforts. In the early days, up until our daughter was five years old, we moved house something like six times. I wanted to settle down by the time she started school. I did not want her to be moving anymore. I did not want us to be moving anymore. We had to save for a deposit and find a home within our budget. Finally, we decided to build a new home. It was just within budget and wow, everything was new. My first home with a brand new bathroom and kitchen, proper heating and air conditioning too. Even a lock-up garage. It was a dream. It had everything, nothing to be fixed, only landscaping to be done. Every weekend, we went to the house and saw what had been completed in the week. It took something like 15 or 16 weeks to build. Bit by bit, it came together. The energy the lot had, even before any soil was turned, was that of home, our beautiful place in the world. I remember when the house was ready to be handed over. They had built it faster than expected. The family was on holiday interstate. I stayed home for an exam. Exam weeks are pretty stressful and busy. Every waking moment is allocated to revision and preparation. I then received notification that the house was ready to be handed over. The date was set the week of my exams and the week the family was away on holiday. Suddenly, I had to settle a home, have an exam and start to move things into the new home and stay there the night. I could have joined the circus with how good I became at juggling. The reason I did not delay moving into the new house was that we were the second home to be completed in our section of the new estate. There were no fences and we were warned by the builder that we should stay from the time we have the keys. With such a little presence, there is a high potential that the hot water service and ovens will go missing, i.e. be stolen. 
and that was all I needed. Working, studying and running a household for ten and a half years was a tiring time. I rarely went out, had few friends, I had no time for them anyway, and did not have much downtime for holidays. By 2011, just after attaining my CPA designation, I took a career break. I was exhausted. I rested for several months. My drive to succeed had driven me instead to exhaustion and a very limited social life. What I have not mentioned is that throughout my CPA, I received several awards for achieving high grades. I was so shocked at receiving the first one that I invited both of my parents along with my immediate family. It was important for my daughter to attend as she had verbalised that she did not want to go to university. What my child saw was a mum that was always too busy to do the fun things. She did not look up to me for my choice. I was not a good role model in her eyes. The heartbreaking irony was that she was my motivator. In time, her attitude changed. As she grew, she started to understand that my education allowed us to have financial freedom. She enjoyed the perks too and started to observe the lesson that nothing that is worth it is easy. Going back to that first awards night, I was shy and nervous and in a crowd of business peers. I did not know what to expect. I found it hard to talk to people. I was an extreme introvert. Then my father spotted the president of the CPA and insisted that I go and talk to her. He poked and prodded me verbally and I did end up talking with her. She approached me as she walked the room. I did okay. There were a couple of other incidents that night that made me ask myself again, what sort of person is my father? He just does not seem capable of doing the right thing. Being a leader in the family, he is only capable of criticism. I remember holding back tears in the car on the way home that night. How did my awards night become a night that I go home in tears? What is wrong with this picture? I decided if I had that night over, he would not be invited. All in all, I received three awards, so I had my night over and no longer let him take the joy out of my evening. After my career break in 2011, my career took off. I was in a tough industry, but also a very rewarding one. We were eventually able to afford nice things at this point in time. Our daughter was finishing secondary school and the last of the school fees would soon be paid. We bought a nicer house and a nicer car. I was worthy of nice things. I was breaking all the rules my father would have me believe. At my core, I have a forgiving and open heart. I look at intentions and character. We as humans don't get it right all of the time. Grudges are unhealthy Forgiveness and letting go is good for the soul. Oh, and then there's self-preservation and the need to set boundaries. Boundaries are a more recent lesson for me. I think I'm still learning and practicing when to use them. Because of all of the history with my father, 
I am a people pleaser, overthinker, peacemaker. You know, all the side effects of constant criticism. Despite this, in 2012, I still have an open heart and invite him to see the new home we have bought, the nicer one. He is there with my in-laws and mum too. After looking through the house, which was about five years old at the time, he proceeds to criticise all the things he saw wrong with it. He was the only one who saw these things and the only one to criticise. This was quite a moment in time. He was no fashionista or style guru. In fact, the exact opposite would describe him. Fortunately, my mother-in-law jumped in and told him he was talking rubbish. She's actually quite up to speed in the style department, so I was thankful for her defence. A similar thing happened when I showed him the nicer car that I had purchased. I said, would you like to go for a drive? He said no, but I think you should get a book called When Is Enough Enough. I understood from his comment he did not approve of the car. The funny thing is, I did not need his approval. This was a treat for me and no one else. I did not care what others thought, Dad or anyone else. It was a piece of luxury for me to enjoy every day. After all, I was worthy. I should pause for a moment and give some background on Dad. His attitude towards wealth accumulation was positive. He was always investing and giving us books that help us understand wealth creation and the flow of funds around the world. His investment portfolio evolved in line with his stages in life too. That is why his reaction and judgment of my nice things is odd. Why would a father be critical of his daughter's financial success, of her independence? It should be a great joy, a moment of pride, excitement, validation of getting enough things right as a parent. Maybe he lacks the emotional capacity to verbalise or even feel any of these things. I am left confused by his actions. I'm going to change pace for a moment and step back into the mid-2000s. As you've just heard, things were starting to go well in life. It was harvesting season, meaning all of the hard work was starting to pay off. I had taken a step into the light, so to speak. There was a family event that was in stark contrast to this time in my life. It's a significant family event that should be included in this story. It's a story that I still have many questions over today. Sadly, I feel that they will forever be unanswered. This is a story about Dad's partner, the artist. They were openly together a short amount of time after the separation of Mum and Dad commenced, probably about 12 months, so around 1997. I met her for perhaps the second time. On saying hello and being formally introduced, there was no reference by either of them that we had met before. She seemed familiar and at some point that night or in the subsequent days, I recalled her visiting the marital home as mentioned in episode one. She was a quiet person in her mid-40s with no children of her own. She had been married previously. She drew detailed pencil works, made theatrical masks as artwork and jewellery that I know of. She often depicted faces. 
It was her most regular subject matter. Most of her work was mysterious, thought-provoking, layered, in particular the masks. Masks can say or hide so many things. They are a symbol of the theatre. They allow anonymity or transformation of character. Perhaps many more things too. Perhaps they also hid her pain. We now know she was a tormented artist. Her mother was a Holocaust survivor. I recall being told, perhaps by Dad, she never had children as looking after her mother had its own difficulties. For her, it was like being a parent in your own childhood. If Dad was the love of her life, she was not able to be with him freely for many years. After all the time she had been in a relationship with Dad, whenever that actually started, she only lived with him in the same house for about one to two years, a relatively short amount of time in the scheme of things. Their history could have been decades. I'm not sure what changed in that brief time that they lived together. I knew her for about seven years, with our contact being at strained family gatherings. I got to know her a little bit. She always erred on the side of sadness and was typically quite serious and detailed in her views. She was comfortable in the corners of the room rather than having too much attention come her way. She was intelligent, articulate, considered, creative and burdened. She would be aware of the awkwardness of family gatherings and did nothing to provoke any ill feelings. She was sensitive in that way. One night in late 2004, just before dinner time, we received the call that she was dead. The call was from a family member. We had guests coming over that night. We quickly cancelled the plans. We went across town to the house. The artist's school friend was there, friend since about four years old. The police and ambulance had just left. Dad was not there, at his home. He had been called and asked to come home from the cricket. He was probably an hour away. He did not know why he was going home early this Saturday. While Dad was in transit, I heard the events of the last few hours. The artist's friend had come to the house to visit her and drop off some washing and things. She was helping the artist, who was not well at the time. She had lost so much weight and no one understood why, except she was now seeing a psychologist. Two days prior, on the Thursday, she was with the psychologist and asked if she was suicidal. Her answer was no. She lied. By the Saturday morning, Dad checked in on her and she farewelled him with a wave from the house. She did not usually do that, Dad mentioned at the time. By about 3pm, her childhood friend came to the house. She had been told to leave the washing and things outside the electric gates to the driveway. The gates were halfway up the driveway, so the things would be away from the street. Her friend put the things down and then thought better of it and shimmied through the gates as she wanted to say hello. As she approached the front door, she knew something was wrong. I'm going to pause this part of the story here and won't go into more detail. Some listeners may be vulnerable at this time or in the future. 
Her childhood friend did not have a mobile phone, so she proceeded to the street and found a bystander who phoned triple zero. The police and the ambulance soon arrived. When they got to the house, the friend went inside and started contacting Dad's children. The contact book was by the phone. She remembered our names through conversation, as we had not previously met. From there, we all arrived and prepared for Dad to arrive and be told the news. My elder sister took the burden on to tell Dad the news. I don't recall this part, so it must have been done away from me. She was the best one to take on the responsibility. She had done it many times as she worked with the elderly, helping families navigate the twilight years with dignity. I imagine she had not had to do it for too many people as young as 51. She did what was too hard and shocking for the rest of us. We were still struggling to digest the news with so many questions of why and sadness in our thoughts. Thoughts of why, and if only, occupied the group of family and friends. We then had to quickly move into a support role for Dad. We were barely equipped, if at all, to handle this situation. Suicide had not touched our lives so closely. Dad said strange things through his pale, shocked and distant expression. He may not recall, but I remember him saying if he had have found her, he would have joined her. Then a couple of hours later, he said he was okay to be left alone for the night. He was not having the same thoughts as the artist had at that stage. After being offered company for the night by several family members, he wanted to be alone and we agreed to his request. You may be thinking about the artist's family and where they were this night. Her brother attended after dark. He was the only family member who did. It might have been too shocking for the rest of them. Given the family's faith, the cause of death also needed to be managed. The taking of life is forbidden. The shock on Dad's face was more than I've ever seen on any human. He was white, expressionless and silent for hours as we all sat in his home to keep him company until late that night. After we left, he proceeded to spend time in the place where she took her last breath. We could not understand this. He said it made him feel close to her. She left a note. I'm not sure when Dad read it. I'm guessing that the police took it before Dad got home and subsequently released it to him. Dad has never revealed what was in the note. We also did not like to ask. In the months after that night, her diaries were read and the only thing he ever said about her writing was along the lines of, there are some things you don't want in your head. We can only speculate what that could mean. I don't think Dad ever recovered from the heartbreak. Sometimes I wonder, if she was still alive, would Dad be a happier and kinder person? Perhaps yes, perhaps no. What I can say is that Dad's behaviour has become even more extraordinary as the years have gone on, particularly since the artist's death. This seems to be a turning point. While we end this episode on a heavy note, 
I want to make the point that I'm not an expert in mental health and suicide. My experience is life experience. I do know that it's important for us to remember to take care of each other and ourselves physically and mentally, to have the courage to check in and ask, are you okay? To listen, to be there if needed. The smallest acts, even from a stranger, can make the biggest difference. Some of you will know Kevin Hines' story. It's a great example when he talks about his journey to the Golden Gate Bridge. He mentions that on his way there, he just wanted one person to stop and ask him if he was okay. No one did. He did see others talk about him, but not to him. He now constantly manages his mental health and spreads the message of how to help others who are vulnerable. I'm no expert, but I wish in the mid-2000s our family had a greater awareness of the signs and support. If you are interested in this story, I listened to it on the podcast called Happy Hour with Lucy and Nikki, episode titled I Jumped Off the Golden Gate Bridge and Survived. We can make the choice not to be defined by our wounds. Instead, if we look in the right places, we might just see what a gift they are. Thank you for listening and look forward to you joining me for the next part of the story. If you have any questions or stories of overcoming challenges of your own that you would like to share, I would love to hear them please drop me a note via the show's email at soulconfessionspodcast at hotmail.com. This episode covers many life themes and could impact some listeners. If at any time you are triggered by any of these stories, please reach out to your local support group. In Australia, Lifeline can be contacted on 13 11 14. If you like the podcast and would like to show your support, please subscribe, follow, rate, share or even donate via our Patreon program. All details are in the show's notes. We'd love to keep bringing you more episodes to enjoy. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to you joining me for episode four. Bye for now.